0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm Charlene Chang, and 32 years ago, two young people passionate about social justice and liberation met while working on a San Francisco education reform project. On their first date, they exchanged texts. Nope, not texts as in phone messages, but texts on paper, hard copies of each other's written works that meant something really important to them. One handed over a self-published report on the history of Stanford's Black Student Union and the other a written paper on Paolo Ferreri's seminal text, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That first date marked the beginning of a lifelong partnership between Steve Phillips and Susan Sandler. Susan, a tireless leader for equity and a dedicated social justice philanthropist, passed away last month on December 16, 2022, from complications from brain cancer the breadth of Susan's impact cannot be overstated. From our work at Democracy in Color to the success of those like Stacey Abrams, to the inroads made by many grassroots voter mobilization groups nationwide, Susan's tremendous vision and dedication influenced and shaped them all. Although she mostly kept a low profile, Susan will be remembered as one of the most consequential and important racial social justice philanthropists in our country. For those who knew her, and I count myself among the lucky ones, she will always be remembered for her deep empathy, brilliance, thoughtfulness, kindness, diligence, resilience, wit, and her wonderful laugh. We will all miss Susan here at Democracy in Color. And yet we know that the best way to honor her is to keep her vision alive. We'll all continue to do the work that she believed in and that was part of her vision to make the world better. And that includes looking forward and planning for the road ahead. Today as we find ourselves at the start of a new year and we'll be talking about that uh what we're paying attention to in this year 2023 heading into 2024, we are going to be having a conversation with our host, Susan's partner in life and social change, Steve Phillips. Steve, I'm really grateful to have had this chance today to open up and talk about Susan and share with our listeners more about her, especially for those who may not have known about her and her legacy and work. And I know that you've probably been asked this so many times over the past few weeks, but I know our listeners are probably wondering now, too, just wanted to check in with you. How are you doing? What's on your mind? And is there anything you would like to share with us?
1: Well, thank you, first, for those words, Charlene. I really appreciate it. I am freshly back from seeing my therapist, Esther Ersanfat, er- 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 who uh, was who's saying, I think you're going to need weekly therapy and, and probably in person after two years of zoom. So that has been a I've had a great team of people supporting me. Um, and I do just want to give a broader shout out to the mental health. Well, actually, even as I'm saying those words, Susan was a mental health professional. Susan an LCSW um, really you know, understood the importance and focused on that. And I think that that uh, the whole realm of mental health and emotional health is, you know, Sadly, still too much stigmatized in our society. So I just wanted to name that. I gave Esther a shout out in the acknowledgments of how we win the Civil War. I said, everybody should have a therapist. And I also, uh, as we're recording this on Tuesday, I want to acknowledge this reporter at the New York Times who I had, you know, known at a relationship with Blake Hounshaw who died today after a family was after a battle with depression. So all of this stuff is real. Um, grief is real. I want to name that and 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 trying to help normalize that as well. Um, I encourage people to find ways to learn more about grief itself, and also, frankly, about mortality. And that, you know, years ago, long before Susan got sick, you know, she had read Atul Gawande's book *Being Mortal*, and actually found the copy she had read many years ago. It was like all marked up and had. Um, Um, you know, notes in the margins and whatnot. So, you know, she had given thought to the totality of her life and ultimately how, um, when the options ran out, how she wanted to wrap it up as well. And so I think the clarity and the courage and the calmness around that, you know, was really just mind-blowing. I think something we can all learn from in that regard. And then on, it's another resource to share that I've been, you know, listening to about the book. And then in a podcast around uh, Marissa, Renee Lee has this book called Grief is Love, which is also an interesting way to talk about. I don't know if she says it in there, but somebody says something about grief is love that has nowhere to go. And mm-hmm. so I just think that these things we need to mm. talk about more and acknowledge and incorporate you know, into, into the totality of our lives. So one of the things that's really given me you know, comfort and resolve and um, grounding is it's not just looking forward, but kind of coming to terms with the totality of our life and where we, you know, my and Susan's journey and where we go from here, right? I mean, I've I long watched that show, House Hunters on House Garden International and HGTV. And so they, there's a one episode, someone says like, you know, so and so is looking for a fresh start. And it's just like hearing that, the Claridales are like, I'm not looking for a fresh start. I love the start that we had 32 years ago, the journey that we were on, the mission that we were pursuing, and I'm going to continue that mission. And I'm going to try to do it with a higher set of standards and accountability and impact, frankly, than I'd been doing it before. And so that's given me some grounding and about like, no, we for 32 years, we were pursuing this mission, trying to make this impact, trying to make the world better. And Susan wanted and would want me to continue that. And so this podcast is kind of one of the beginning steps in that. And then looking forward to 2023. And I think doing the work of social change and doing it in partnership with people is what's also going to help me heal personally. So let's get to work.
0: Let's get to work. And I know Susan is also, yeah. In you know, in my heart, I just picture her also, her voice in, you know, my ear and our ear saying, okay, like, you know, keep going, keep doing the work. And I feel her presence as we do this work. And I just thank her and you for all that the two of you have done together to make our country and our world a better place. And so with that... Like I said, we are officially in January 2023. I feel like I say this every January when we've started a podcast, but literally when I see the numbers 2023, I'm like, where's my jetpack? It seems so futuristic. Oh, I know, I know. It is like, George know, (laughs) for for those of us who grew up where the year started off with the, the numbers 19, something, something. To see these numbers on the calendar, mm. it just it still boggles my mind. And that just shows my age. I'm sure for young people, they're like, whatever. <laughs> right. Over what it. is she talking about? But that right. does mean <laughs> <laughs> they're like, that's just the year. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> right. They don't get it. But um, that just means 2024 is around the corner. No rest for the weary. This is a non-election cycle, but all of the stuff that's gonna start, you know, ramping up for the election year next year is going to begin. And we're just going to be fully in it, gearing up for another presidential election cycle. And a lot lot of that work is going to be, in terms of the laying of groundwork, is going to be happening this year. So for the presidential race, Democratic strategists for President Biden are aiming to take advantage of what will most likely be a chaotic Republican presidential primary to build a large network of volunteers and donors for Biden's reelection campaign. And uh, this is according to a recent article by The Washington Post. Michael Scherer. And of course, the assumption is that Biden will not face a serious challenge for the party's nomination. So, Steve, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about Biden running again in 2024?
1: Yeah, I think that the whole question around Biden's decision about 2024 is going to, in fact, be one of the really seismic events of 2023. And it's almost, in some ways, would will be, you know, seismic in terms of something happening or something not happening. Mm-hmm. And so the implications of it are quite significant, really, for, you know, potentially for the next decade, if not longer, on top of this, you know, the particular moment that we're in. So it's just a very interesting point in time in that I think I saw some, again, article today talking about, you know, People don't want Biden to run, even the Democrats, right? So like my, my niece, uh, Leah Sandler, we were on this Zoom call a few months ago, and she was saying, she's a senior in college, and she was saying that none of her friends want Biden to run again, but none of them can disagree upon who should run again. And I just thought that yeah. was a perfect encapsulation. I mean, who should run in 2024, right? That was a perfect encapsulation sure. of the moment and the space that we're in. So there is going to be and there needs to be a major constructive internal struggle in the Democratic Party around leadership, direction, strategy, priorities, etc. And much of that often plays out in the context of a presidential race. My hope is that that will not take place in 2024. My hope is that Biden will run again to buy us more time to get ready for that major battle around where we're going to go and who's going to take us in leadership and which parts of the coalition are going to be in the lead and what issues are going to dominate. So that that's one of the big reasons. I would rather have us have that fight in the context of leading up to 2028. As well as that, there's so much, well, for one, there's just so much, you know, damage to undo from the Trump years in terms of I think mm-hmm. that the you know, Biden team has been doing a lot, you know, of good stuff in that regard. getting putting the government back together again, so they can try to function for for human beings. And so there's that. And then there is some level of of truth to this piece about the breadth of Biden's appeal. I mean, it happened in a particular moment where we're facing mm-hmm. a you know a white nationalist fascist um, wannabe, but still he does have breadth from, you know, the communities of color to some of the the small number of alienated moderate um, Republicans. And so my hope would be we keep all of that together and give us some more time to continue to build what's going to come next. But that decision is going to be extraordinarily consequential And it may not even feel that way if he decides to run again, because it's just kind of be moving forward. But if he doesn't, the upheaval is just going to be enormous. And it's not going to be something, frankly, I'm looking forward to.
0: Steve, you had mentioned earlier that you foresee a major battle within the Democratic Party. Who do you see might try to run in the next cycle? And what do you mean by that battle?
1: Right. Well, it's not a question of who might try to run. Who's got who's already low key running? So this is just a question of they running in twenty twenty four or twenty twenty eight. So. I mean, they're the individuals, but I think more importantly, or at least as a a prelude to the individuals, are the constituencies. And so this is what uh, this is kind of why I mean about what's going to be so significant, right? And we've talked about this, you know, the whole point of this podcast, right? And that's in terms of the, you know, I write about it in the books, et cetera, is that, yeah, I uh, I was explaining why I was so excited to write How We Win the Civil War, as well as Bruno's New White, is my entire professional life, I have been and you know, people of color have been told to take a back seat and that the, you know, yes, these issues of, you know, racial justice and equality are important, um, but we need to win. So that, that, those issues have to um, go on the back burner so that we can win and moderate our politics and try to woo people in the middle. Now, what I hope I have shown, I hope you and I have shown in how we win the civil war is that we are in fact winning, but it's that's not how we're winning. We're winning by people of color in the leadership of the movement, organizing mainly people of color to enter the electorate, transform the composition of the electorate, and then win these elections. And that's why Raphael Warnock is a senator. That's why Katie Hobbs is the governor in Arizona. Um, that's why we've had, you know, many um, wins, you know, even at the county and city level in places like Texas uh, and, and elsewhere. So, who's going to champion the communities of color and the community of color strategy? So that's one constituency. Then there's the white progressives who have manifested their power mainly by backing Bernie Sanders in the past, but they tend to, you know, have a candidate and 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 be a a force at least in the primaries in most of the most of the Democratic primaries. Elizabeth Warren contested with Bernie the last time around for that constituency. Mm -hmm. And then there's white moderates and then the business elite. And so that is Pete Buttigieg's sweet spot. I mean, you should see people's
0: mm-hmm.
1: eyes wax, you know, uh, with like glee as they like talk about Buttigieg and oh, how smart mm-hmm. he is, et cetera, et cetera. And so he has that constituency very enthusiastically behind him, which helps him raise money, which then helps him become a you know a, a more stronger candidate. So those are the constituencies, and the question is which constituencies and then which issues. And then, which strategies are we going to be pursuing? And so, that's what's at stake, slightly beneath the surface. But I would just prefer to keep it beneath the surface for now. And so, we can try to sort out how's the best way to move that move this movement forward.
0: Can I quickly get your thoughts on Kamala? Because you know, when when you look back and think about when she was selected as VP, the buzz and the excitement was that she could then be the you know. The person to to maybe even run, you know, this next cycle, or that it would it would be hers for the taking.
1: Yeah, so let me say, let me say something about three three people quickly. So there's Kamala, and there's Cory Booker, and there's Stacey Abrams. And so Kamala and Cory both ran last time. Stacey and Kamala were both considered for the vice presidential piece by Biden. So I do think that Cory is underappreciated in terms of his potential because he's one of the few people that are out there who can, who can span these constituencies. And I mean, I have sat with him across the table from, you know, fortune 500 CEOs where he's able to communicate with them. And I've seen him, you know, move people to tears and standing ovations talking about connecting to the civil rights movement and, you know, racial justice. And so there are very few people that that fluent in that. Breath, And so that's not to be underestimated. And then I also think that, I actually think that Stacey Abrams should be considered a candidate for the presidency. Obviously, you know, we didn't win the gubernatorial, but I what I don't think people appreciate is the some level, of the, the intersection of the symbolism and the strategy and the substance is that in a country where leadership is defined as, as tall, thin, straight, white men, Stacey embodies like literally everything that is not that and everybody who is not that resonates with her. And that I think that's something in terms of the zeitgeist and the culture that people don't fully appreciate. And then the Kamala question is a complicated one. And I think that we should, we may even want to have like a whole discussion around it, but there's a very complicated interplay of racism and sexism and what's the right role for a particular leader. And so what a person's strengths and whatnot. And so it, to the extent that people have any, you know, legitimately criticized, everybody, but there's any legitimate, legitimate criticism, it's very hard to even offer that in a context in which racism and sexism are rampant in our society. And so it's a complicated situation that she is in in terms of how to move forward. Obviously, as a person of color, as a woman of color, I think there are legitimate questions we all need to debate around. What is the right role for each leader? And is the executive role the right role for Kamalam? She was an extraordinary senator, extraordinary senator in the Judiciary Committee. So that's something we're going to have to all grapple with, um, but it's complicated, and I think that we, it would require a much further uh, explication.
0: All right. So just before the holidays, Democrats had announced a historic shift in the primary calendar. I really want to talk about that because it's it's a huge deal and it's really exciting. I don't fully understand, so I want to ask you a little bit about it, but it is um, definitely I think in our lifetimes it's it's you know, I don't remember there being a shift in the primary calendar uh, unless I probably wasn't paying attention, which is totally possible. But under the new proposal, South Carolina would kick off the primary calendar on February 3rd. uh, Again, this would be February 3rd, 2024. And then Georgia would host the fourth primary on the 13th. Both of these states have tremendous sizable Black populations, and they played a critical role in Biden's 2020 victory. In the past, Democratic nominating contest began with the Iowa caucuses, as we all know, and the New Hampshire primary, and let's just say those two states do not have overwhelmingly significant Black populations; um, they're they're significantly white. That that's why this proposal is it's historic and it's a very big shift. But as Katie Gluck reports in the New York Times, the new calendar is running into some issues. In Georgia, Democrats face logistical problems in moving up their primary, and in New Hampshire, which would move from the first primary state to the second, has officially indicated that it can't comply with the early state lineup endorsed due to a 1968 state law that ensures New Hampshire's primary would be held before any other state. So, Steve, how would this new primary calendar change the landscape of the presidential election cycle? And what are some of your thoughts now about the these logistical issues that are coming up so far?
1: Yeah. So first, in terms of the, the historical context to it. So you are correct and you did not miss something in terms of the calendar for 51 years it has been Iowa and New Hampshire kicking off the Democratic primary process, and this is just how it has been all these different years. And this is the first time anyone proposing to change that, and so it's a it's an enormous suggestion of what Biden is trying to actually make happen. So just in terms of procedurally, it's a very big deal in that regard. So then you get to the substantive piece. So as you as you mentioned, right, Iowa, and New Hampshire, are both ninety percent white states, country that's now. 40% people of color. But then the, as the first two states, they have enormous winnowing power in terms of mm. who is going to make it through to be considered for the for the nomination. And so then you get to then, if in a state that's 90% white, what are the issues? What are the constituencies that have to be elevated, right? I mean, there is, you can probably find on the internet, as so I remember it clearly myself watching it, what would be a podcast of my mentioning Jesse Jackson, that when Jesse ran in '88, he announced in '87, I think, in Iowa, and there's like pictures of Jesse learning how to milk a cow in Iowa, in 1987. Oh uh, my God! And so those <laughs> concerns are what what the candidates have to speak to, and so they take that, and then it's like which candidates are the white voters in those states more inclined towards. So. Putting South Carolina first, where the 60% of the Democratic voters are Black, 65 plus percent are people of color, that's a whole different ballgame then around what hoops you have to go through, what communities you have to speak to, what issues you have to understand and prioritize, that it puts the Black community quite literally front and center. and then. Yeah. Right, and you throw Georgia on top of that, coming you know shortly after, shortly after that, then that really emphasizes the centrality of African Americans in determining who is going to be the Democratic nominee. So it's seismic in terms of what its significance will be. But then that's also kind of why you're getting a lot of this um, grumbling and people who liked it the way it was and trying to take pot shots at it, etc. And so they'll all will find reasons to, ostensible reasons. Um, to oppose the process. But mm-hmm. bottom line, what Biden is saying, no, it's because he did quite well with black voters that he's doing this. So it's kind of shrewd from a tactical standpoint, but from a broad public policy and also political standpoint. What's lost to history in terms of doing the numbers, if John Kerry in 2004, when he ran against Bush, he came very close to winning. If he had gotten Obama's percentage of the black vote in Ohio, Kerry would have won the presidency that would have flipped ohio and that would have flipped the, that would have flipped the white house so as a strategic matter making sure your candidate is knowledgeable about expert in terms of the black community issues and able to inspire that constituency that is the best way to win the white house ultimately but that's not how people have thought about it for 50 years
0: and by the way so it's all so fascinating. I cannot stop picturing Jesse milking the cow. I got to see that photo. and Thinking about his comms team, you know, as somebody who does comms work, where they're like, Jesse, here's the thing. You need to learn how to milk a cow. And you got to look like you really know what you're doing because there's going to be journalists taking photos. And I could just imagine. And I'm thinking, what's the equivalent of, say, Pete? What does Pete have to be prepped to do in South Carolina and Georgia to look like he really knows how to like hang? You oh, know, know. Well, in the black community. Go, is he
1: going to go kick it in a black barbershop in terms of like.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's a, it's just a f- fascinating times we live in. And um, just really quick, cool, you're saying how the order of order of these states winnows candidates out. Uh, just real briefly, can you explain, like, how does that work again?
1: So they, they, they occur sequentially. So like in, in 2020, right, so it was Iowa, New Hampshire, was it Nevada, South Carolina, South Carolina, Nevada. So the entire media world looks at the very first state and then the very first states. And so the amount of momentum and then media anointment that comes from who wins that first state. Then the money dries up for the other candidates. The momentum dries up. People want to be with a winner. The subsequent states then are, are saying, oh, I'm going to go with this person who's got the momentum, who's got the excitement. I mean, if you go back and look at most of the, so what happened was you have those four individual states, and then you had like Super Tuesday, a whole bunch of states all voting together, like on the same day, et cetera. And so most of the candidates in 2020 dropped out before Super Tuesday particularly mm-hmm. coming off of Biden's South Carolina win. And then he won so def- uh, definitively in South Carolina. And then it's like, oh, well, then Biden's going to be the person. And so people want to get out. They want to get in good with who's going to be the nominee. And so Pete mm-hmm. gets out. And then now uh, Pete's the transportation secretary. Klobuchar mm-hmm. got out mm-hmm. and then Klobuchar got in with the Biden team. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of how it plays itself. We have 20 different people, four different states. But the f- you can't, you don't You don't have money, You don't have momentum. And you don't you're not seen as having viability if you cannot win in those first states.
0: And then it's just crazy that for this many decades, especially the recent years, it's like, oh, you either you you get you're make it or break it, depending on how what Iowa voters think of you. Exactly. And Iowa is just Iowa. It's not the entire country demographically exactly. or culturally or anything. Fascinating. Um, So we all know that thankfully the Republican red wave never materialized, was more like a pink trickle during the midterms last fall. And last week we witnessed the crazy, what I've been thinking of as like red chaos in within the Republican Party regarding the House speakership. And I just kind of been looking at that as it's just very telling And, you know, what a lot of the pundits have been saying is this is kind of defining very telling of what's going on with the Republican Party right now and maybe what they'll be facing for the next two years. And so also the current Republican National Committee chair, Ronna McDaniel, faces a lot of opposition from her party as well against her seeking a third term. Steve, what what was it like for you to watch what was going on with Republicans, and how are you assessing their situation right now?
1: Well, the whole thing is insane, and it's—I uh, was watching MSNBC before we started recording, and they had um, Jen Psaki, used to be the spokesperson for Biden, on commenting, yeah. and then they're talking in a fashion of like well, Republicans are not serious about governing, and this shows their, you know, et cetera. And I was like, I was trying to think of what kind of analogy could I come up with? It'd be like having commentators talking about the Confederate army, about how, you know, they're not abiding by the normalities and the procedures. I mean, it's like these people have no interest in governing. They are trying to take power and they're fully prepared to tear down this country to do it. And their only objective is to block the agenda of the democratically elected president of this country. And so it's only about chaos and confusion and blocking and what's the word? You know, low intensity warfare in terms of how they're going about. They're not trying to govern. They are not, they do not care about this country. and They do not care about its institutions. And so all of the whole nonsense of what was going on, I just couldn't even pay attention to it because I, I did none of it matters. And all they're trying to figure out is who's going to be able to throw the biggest, you know, bombs at the house to be able to stop it from functioning and then be able to stop the government from functioning when the whole debt ceiling has to be raised. So I don't think it makes sense to even look at this outside of the context of a very large percentage of the country does not like the changes that are happening in the country in terms of its becoming more multiracial and is prepared to metaphorically, at least, burn it down. And so it's in that context that you have to look at Republican politics, who's going to be the most incendiary. And that will then strengthen that person within the Republican Party's operations and make them strong in that very narrow sense. but has nothing to do with the totality of the United States government. But I think if you look at it in that standpoint, then it actually is a lot clearer what's going on.
0: So let me ask you this. What do you think is going on with Trump right now? Do you think he'll actually run? Do you think if he runs, he would win? This definitely uh, weighs on a lot of people's minds, including my daughter and myself, I must say. But it is. It is definitely something that people are, as as the election cycle starts to near, people are definitely, I think a lot of people are thinking about what worried about.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that that's another, it's another situation where to properly understand, you have to step back and look at the bigger picture. And so again, you can't look at Trump through the lens of how is this political party leader and ex-president, you know, conducting himself, et cetera, because that's not at all what he's about. He is about, you know, self-aggrandizement, Becoming ever more, you know, famous and known, and willing to do anything to advance that, without any regard for the conduct of the country, or without regard for being in a global pandemic where a million people are going to die, because you you don't you don't give a damn. So it is critically important to understand as people, because Trump's power is waning in the context of Republican parties; influence is diminishing. And that there is a there's a growing segment of the party which is frustrated with him, and they and his influence in elections is is declining as well. You saw a lot of it in the midterms, but it's critical to understand that only reason he became powerful from the first place is because he stepped up to become the champion of white people. He was at four percent in the polls of Republican voters in May of 2015, and then he gets in the race in June. He calls Mexicans rapists says he's here to defend the country against these Mexicans coming into or to defend white people in this country against Mexicans. And he zoomed up in the polls and all these corporations abandoned him, but all the voters gravitated towards him. And then he never looked back. And so there have been, and there will be other champions of white people within this country. People will fan the flames of racial resentment, right? I mean, George Wallace, in 68, Strom Thurmond in 48, uh, Jefferson Davis back in the Civil War time period so it's it's a mistake to look at Trump mm-hmm. solely as an individual and it's more important to look at this whole unrelenting movement to fan the flames of white racial resentment and who's going to be at the forefront of that movement and so that's the more compelling and and critical um, factor within this country but you you mentioned that your daughter's concerned about Trump how is how is your daughter looking at this whole election situation in 2024
0: and whatnot yeah so it's interesting you know with my daughter she's 11 now and we are you know a family that definitely talks about politics a lot and so she came i kind of like her her first wave of coming into political age is when trump got elected and it always kind of breaks my heart but it's she's not alone she's part of this generation gen z that came of age uh, uh in terms of politics and uh, paying attention and noticing what's happening in terms of who's becomes president. She was all excited because we were telling her that Hillary was going to win and that she Mm -hmm. was going to be part of a first generation to have, be it live in America with a female president. Mm -hmm. And there was Hillary's um, theme song all about, you know, girl empowerment Mm -hmm. and for her to go through that and watch it on TV. And then the next day we, had to tell her that Trump won. Mm-hmm. It is pretty formative if you think about how all of us are shaped by these news events when we were really young. Around when you yeah. start to get an understanding of how the world works, and often it's not fair, and that doesn't often make sense. And then also, what I like to kind of joke is that you know, and now she she's been through the Trump years in terms of his administration, and he she knows about all the crimes he's committed and the kind of person he is. That she often just says to us, "Why is he not behind bars?" And we don't have, you know, we'll say they're trying, and we don't have well, a also really good a satisfaction. That Susan quite answer.
1: literally asked me. Susan was like, "Why isn't he in jail?" <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and now because she is older, she's in middle school. She also knows that it's no coincidence the kind of person he is, the way he looks. The, he's a white man, powerful with a lot of money. And that that has something to do with it, right? That our system doesn't really work, and that our system is racist, and that our system is not is not fair, and that even though us as, as parents always say, "Oh, everything you do, you'll have a consequence," right? We always say, "Oh, no, you can have a consequence for if you do something bad or wrong." But in the real world, it's much more complicated than that, and it's not always fair. And so, it, I I think it's very interesting how this generation has been shaped by the Trump years mm-hmm. and him as the like. The big boogeyman, political boogeyman, and what he represents, but I don't think she totally understands the nuances, like you were just laying out. I think she really just thinks anybody but him, and then will ultimately it will be better. Like everything's better than Trump. But I understand that that's what you were saying—that that's not necessarily true at all, because he's like we've said before—he's lazy and actually not that not that bright. But what if we get somebody next time who is very disciplined and and actually quite bright, but also can you know, rile up white supremacists and people right. who are scared of the changes happening. So we'll see. Um, it's a funny thing I just want to share. You know, we talk, she does come to me sometimes like, well, why don't we do this? You know, she comes up with what she thinks are solutions <laughs> for our democracy. And she'll go, why can't we just take all the Republicans and put them on an island and I think, okay, that's interesting. I say, well, first of all, that's not how democracy works. And also, which island? <laughs> and aren't there de- aren't there people already living there? But she thought she came up on a, a great solution. And I had to, you know, we talk about how, for a lot of reasons, that, that wouldn't be right either. So, yes, a, a budding sort of policymaker in, in the making, but not quite there yet.
1: It will be interesting to see how that generation, I, mean, I hadn't thought about the Disappointment of the Clinton Trump contest, but how that, what's that going to mean in terms of the level of clarity, lack of naivete of that generation about how politics really mm-hmm. works?
0: Similarly, how interesting was a generation who only knew a black president, right? Who only, knew, like, that was their, that they were shaped by that. And,
1: oh, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. No. So Julie, Julie Martinez Ortega's son Carlos when obama was president they had like uh he was like in elementary school middle school and the they were in dc right and they had like a african ambassador came to speak to their school or something he comes home to julius is like mom why are all the presidents black right and so <laughs> that whole different world view yes
0: the other key goal for 2024 that i want to talk about which democrats will need to start laying the groundwork for this year is taking back the house Democrats are starting the 2024 campaign in better than expected shape, again, because the red wave didn't really happen. Again, last year's midterm elections left Republicans with a thin majority of just 222 seats compared to Democrats' 213 seats. So a thin majority. If Democrats do win back the chamber new House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries would be poised to be majority speaker. And that would be an exciting historic first because that would make him the first Black House majority speaker. Steve, what do you see as Jeffries' key challenges this year? And how are you thinking about Democrats' role in the House ahead of 2024?
1: Well, I think the biggest the biggest challenge is is to take back the majority in 2024. Um, in the interim, it would be important to try to, as I was talking about before, the level of, you know, chaos and destruction that the Republicans are trying to do to try to see if he can partner with the White House and the Senate to keep the country functioning, which is not at all in the priority of the House Republicans. What's interesting about the margin being so small is that I do really wonder is, can Jeffries pick off for, at least on different issues, pick off for Republicans? To be able to partner up with the Democrats, so that they could actually, we could actually get some different things done. So that'll be a very interesting thing to watch. Is is there some, you know, very small constellation of Republicans who want things to function and aren't just trying to drive the country um, over the cliff? So that'll be one thing I think. But the biggest, the bigger piece is that the the margin is very small, and it's small because, and we talked about this before the election. Joe Biden won the most votes in 226 of the congressional. Districts, the you need 218 districts to control a majority, and so there are more Democratic voters in more in a majority of the districts there. And so, particularly heading the presidential election in 2024, in a large turnout election, we absolutely should be able to take back the House. Biggest question then strategically is is the are the Democrats in the House led by Jeffries, but also in terms of the congressional the campaign arm or right, DCCC. Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is going to spend, you know, close to $200 million, how are they going to spend that money? Are they going to spend that money trying to organize and mobilize this majority of Democratic voters, or are they going to squander it around the... um, which typically tends to happen on TV ads trying to persuade a far more narrower slice of the electorate.
0: So let's wrap up with Virginia. Primaries for several seats at the state and local levels will be held on June 20th of this year, and the general election will take place on November 7th, again, this year. Also up for election in November are several seats in the Virginia state legislature. Currently, Democrats are in charge of the Senate in Virginia, while Republicans hold the House of Delegates. Steve, what do you think should be the biggest electoral priorities for Virginia Democrats this year?
1: The highest priority needs to be taking back the House of Delegates, the, the the equivalent of the House of Representatives within the state of Virginia in the legislature. So the Democrats still have the majority in the state Senate in terms of the House of Delegates. We lost that in 2021. And so that's the biggest priority and the most important piece and for a number of different reasons, right? I mean, for one, just for the lives of the nine million people in Virginia, a chance to you know minimally stop bad policies and maybe even strike some compromise with the governor to do some good things for the people of the state. Right? When there's been more political power um, by progressives and Democrats, they you know expanded Medicaid in terms of providing health care to four hundred thousand um, Virginians. We've raised the minimum wage. And have taken a number of significant progressive steps in that direction. So it's it's important in that realm. And it's also important because there's very few off-year elections, certainly in a, across a state in um, 2023. And so Virginia takes on outsized importance as a harbinger or a bellwether of what's to come in 2024, where the political wind's blowing the way the media tends to look at it. And so to the extent that we're able to take back the uh, state uh, legislature within Virginia, it will, it will put wind in the sails of Democrats heading into 2024, and in that the voters are with us. We can, you know, advance particularly in terms of a uh, tie to a progressive uh, policy agenda. That the voters support progressive policies, we should be able to win, give momentum and enthusiasm um, nationally as people look at the uh, example and the lessons. From Virginia in 2023, so it, it's taking back the state ledge, and then in particularly, you know, following the lead of the awesome Tram Win, New Virginia Majority, former podcast guests, and you know, friend of Democracy in Color, and one of the main leaders within the state of uh, Virginia. So they're doing the work to mobilize the voters to take back the ledge, and they could use all the uh, help that we could provide them.
0: And then that's I. I always just encourage people to just check out what's happening in Virginia. I feel like I feel like there are just a lot of people who still follow democratic politics or progressive politics and they're not really tuned into Virginia. But I think it's um I've learned a lot from you, Steve, over the years and certainly in working on the book. And just there's, you know, just so much uh just the changes that have happened there, the the leadership of Tram and and others and it's very exciting work that's being done there and so much more potential. I think, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, doesn't really always get on people's radars, but I, Oh yeah. It's not hugely important.
1: People, uh, check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we had paused from doing our shameless plugs for the book, how we win the civil war. If you want. <laughs> but if you want to understand Virginia, there's an entire chapter dedicated to Virginia, um, you know, uh, alone among the States of the Confederacy and it was the literal capital of the confederacy and and it really also has that level of symbolic significance and there was a, we should actually put this in our, our newsletter if we haven't already there was a they had the tons of confederate monuments really littered across the state and certainly across the, the richmond the capital they finally after george floyd was killed we had the you know momentum and power to get them to get the votes taken to remove them they couldn't get any of the white contractors to take down those statues. Mm-hmm. And there's one black man who had his own company who went down, took down almost all of those statues.
0: Very symbolic. I just want to also just say during this period, I've been really f- feeling lately what this sort of bridge period between January 6th and heading into MLK's mm-hmm. birthday. And I, as we said at the beginning of the show, the work continues it's what Susan would have wanted. Um, We are so grateful for all our listeners and those who read our newsletter and read the book and keep buying the book because it's all part of the work. And we have a lot of work ahead of us. And we're committed to honoring Susan this way. And we're just wishing everybody a happy, healthy new year. And on we go.
1: Yeah, so thank you. Well, you just interesting and you raised this, Charlene. I appreciate it. I hadn't, you know, this is the, also the process of you know, both grieving and moving forward and reflecting and making meaning is that I had not until you said those words, I had forgotten <laughs> that Susan and my one of our first dates was on Martin Luther King's birthday weekend, and that she was very into Gandhi and nonviolence, and then I gave her a copy of back to the text right so i gave her a copy of the collected works of martin luther king i'm on that weekend so there's an appropriateness to the timing of all of this and i guess that's that maybe that's my uh, outgoing piece too um you know is that um when i when we did bring Jackson, who was with dr king to speak at stanford in 1987 the theme and the title of his speech was the unfinished business of martin luther king And so that really, I think, is the context of which we're operating here on so many different levels. And I just want to also let people know, if our listeners are in San Diego, I will be down there with the Alliance San Diego team, Andrea Guerrero and Chris Wilson and others giving the Martha King Day um, speech on uh, Monday, uh, the 16th. And then that Friday, I'm going home to Cleveland. I'm going to speak at the Cleveland City Club. Um, where a lot of this stuff actually got launched nine years ago. Um, I gave a talk titled Brown is the New White. And I'm going to talk there. Um, so in terms of the spirit of the, and that, that's going to be a uh, live streamed on on the City Club of um, Cleveland's website. So people can access that there as we try to get back out there and carry on this work. And so I want to thank, you know, you, Charlene, I think the entire and color team, I think everybody who's been, you know, reached out and a friend and supporter as we continue to move forward to try to manifest the change that needs to happen and that Susan and I have been working on, that all of us are working on. So, thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elcure. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, heading into 2023 and beyond, keep the faith.